my Bibles tonight and go to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. Good to see all of you. Tonight we want to look at some questions, do something a little different. We've entitled this, Just Simply Be Ready to Answer, just in case someone asks you questions about what you believe, we'll try to get through five or six questions that have come. But First Peter chapter number three, notice verse number 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. People will certainly ask you about what you believe. They'll ask you why you believe. They'll even go out of their way to ask you what is it about Christianity that is so important to you that requires you to live that way and believe the Bible and the Scripture. And it's very good to be able to provide some answers when it comes to something like that. So we'll have a word of prayer, then we'll launch right into this. In Jesus' name, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We honor you. We're so grateful for another opportunity to fellowship. It is a great blessing to be able to look into the scripture. So as we face the word of the Lord tonight, we pray that you hide us behind your cross. Let your word speak to each of our hearts. Give us ears to hear what it is the Spirit is saying through the text. And Father, we thank you for the touch of God and for the anointing in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Peter wrote this because there were a number of believers that were living in different parts of what we know today as Turkey. They were living around the Black Sea area. And Peter wrote this to encourage them in the midst of all of their persecutions. There was a lot of difficulties coming to them. Their faith was on trial. They were experiencing persecution, and he had to go out of his way to explain to them that even though you're facing all of these things, these things will not last always, but you do want to live your life as a Christian in such a way that you're disciplined and you don't find yourself falling away from the Lord. He even goes so far to tell them in chapter 2 that we should imitate Christ and walk in his steps. When he was talked about, he didn't turn around and talk about other people. When he gets into chapter 3, he talks about how wives should behave themselves. Then he moves over into this area where he's talking about the sufferings of the saints. And he explains to us in verse 14, if you suffer because of righteousness sake, you should be happy and don't be afraid of their terror and don't be troubled. And he's saying in the midst of all of this that's coming against you, be ready to give an answer. So if you're a Christian and you're being persecuted and you're on trial and people are mocking you and they ask you, why do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Then you ought to be ready to give some kind of an answer. Everybody may not give the, the same answer in the exact same way. However, you do want to be able to explain to people that, you know, the work of God in your heart brought conviction. That the Lord opened your eyes to be able to see the truth of Christianity, despite the fact there are a lot of religions in this world. That you recognize what Christ has done for you on the cross, how he died in your place, how he was raised again from the dead. And then there's nothing else to argue about. If someone says they don't believe the content of the Bible nor the gospel message, that is on their part. We simply need to be ready to give an answer. 
And it's through our answer that God works by his spirit to bring conviction upon upon people. Well, when it, it comes to various questions that people have about the Christian life, from time to time I get these and I, I want to work on a couple of these. And the first one that, that came to me was, is it wrong to pass judgment on people? Are we supposed to judge people? Because you hear people say all the time, you shouldn't do that. Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at a number of scriptures this evening. But Matthew chapter 7, you've probably been in conversation with people before and maybe they asked your opinion about something and you expressed it and they said to you, well, don't you know you're not supposed to be judgmental? <laughs> I love that. You're not supposed to. Who are you to judge me? That, that kind of a thing. Matthew chapter 7, look at verse number 1. Judge not that you be not judged. So I'm just going to paraphrase as I'm reading the KJV. Uh, don't judge so that you won't be judged. Because whatever judgment you judge with, you're going to be judged. And with ever, whatever amount that you measure out to other people, it's going to come back to you. That, that's, that's what's being stated here. Why do you behold the, the speck or the moat that's in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the beam or the log that's in your own? How will you say to your brother, let me pull the moat out of your eye and behold, a beam is in your own? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam in your own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mode out of thy brother's eye. So many people are afraid to say that a certain act or a certain saying is wrong because they don't want to be hypocritical. And sometimes we look at our own lives and we think, okay, I've got enough problems in my life. Why in the world do I ever want to point out what is wrong with someone else's life? Well, let's go to Romans chapter 14. We'll look at this again. Here's another verse that people very often like uh, to use. Romans 14 is the discussion about what kinds of foods or meats we should eat and what days of the week we should worship God on. You'd be surprised how many conversations I've had with Seventh-day Adventists who try to explain to me that if I go to church on Sunday, I'm out of the will of God. And if I don't go to church specifically on Saturday, that I've taken the mark of the beast. I even had a gentleman one time come to one of the other churches, and he came for four or five weeks. And just in casual conversation, I realized immediately that he was a seven-day Adventist, and I noticed he was going from person to person, talking to people in the fellowship, and I had a couple of people say to me, something seems a bit off about what he's talking about. I said, it's because he's a seven-day Adventist. He he eventually is going to get around to explaining to me and then to some of you why we need to have church on Saturday rather than Sunday. And I'll never forget the day he came to my home in Red Cloud and he had all kinds of literature that he wanted me to read. And he said, I'm bringing this to you because I feel like I need to give this to you because you need to know what the Bible says about the days of the week you need to worship. And I said, well, I've read that kind of literature before. And I said, I'm not too confused about what day of the week to worship on. But I said, just to give you a quick rehearsal. I said, when I lived in the Middle East, we went to church on Friday. I said, when I lived in Jerusalem, we went to church on Saturday. I said, here in America, I do services on Sunday here, Monday night in Friend, Tuesday night in uh, Hebron, Wednesday night again in Red Cloud. I said, I don't think God's displeased with the way I'm doing services at all. So I said, no, you can, you can keep your literature. And so he, he got upset with me. 
and, and wanted to talk more and more about it. But 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 here's the thing in, in Romans 14, verse 13, the scripture says, let us therefore judge. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. See, if, if I feel like I want to worship God on the Lord's day, as they did in the early church, as is recorded in the book of Acts and then in uh, Corinthians. If I want to worship the Lord on Sunday, that, that's not a hindrance to you. That's that, that's a blessing because I choose to worship God and acknowledge the Lord on the Lord's day. If I wanted to do it on a Tuesday. Then what difference would it matter to anybody? So I'm not going to judge somebody on the day of the week that they worship. I'm certainly not going to judge anybody whether or not they're eating pork, steak or shrimp or anything like that. That, that, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. But I do know that the scripture says we're not to put a stumbling block in front of somebody. If I know that you're a Christian now, but you come out of a background where you didn't eat meat because you believed in a vegetarian lifestyle or you didn't agree with pork. And then you come into Christianity and we're getting to know each other. I'm not going to invite you over for dinner and then put a pork roast on the table in front of you. That's putting a stumbling block in front of somebody. So the scripture is very plain that we don't want to do that. However, if you go further one book, First uh, Corinthians 2, I want you to see a scripture that's very important. First Corinthians 2, notice verse number 14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. So there you have a very explicit statement from the Apostle Paul that says the spiritual person, the Christian person, is to make judgments. You're to make judgments. You had to make a judgment call tonight whether or not you wanted to come out to fellowship or come to Bible study. You've got to make a judgment call every morning whether or not you want to go to work. You can choose. You can decide. You can make a decision. You can judge. Okay. You can decide whether or not you want to be employed or unemployed. But it's a judgment that you have to make. Listen to what Proverbs says. I'm going to read this to you, the first four verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. Discretion, that's, that's the ability to discern or judge between matters, to be discreet. Discretion has to do with you making sense of a situation and acting accordingly. So the whole point of gathering knowledge, the whole point of the instruction that comes to the infant straight on up through high school and college or just through their adult years is to help a person be able to decide between what's right and what's wrong. And anybody who says that that we as Christians aren't supposed to judge, they're forgetting that that statement in itself is a judgment. Okay, if if I say I don't want to make a decision about that right now, I've already made a decision. Indecision is just as much a decision as anything else. And when you talk to people about what the scripture says, and they make statements essentially saying that you should not judge, what they really mean is don't say anything that's going to disagree with what I'm doing. 
because as long as we're in agreement about what we like and what we don't like, it's it's going to be it's going to be fine. Okay, let's let's work on the second second question uh, here, and 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 much of this won't even come directly from from scripture because this is this is historical. Why is it that the the Protestant Bible is different from the Catholic Bible? See, that's a that's a question people people often ask. Now, when I go back and forth to Indiana to record for television, whenever I go to the the hotel where they're having me stay right on the campus there at Notre Dame, they they have in every hotel room they got a a Bible just like this. It's a new revised standard version with the Apocrypha. And of course, the Apocrypha is a compilation of books that are not in the Protestant Bible. But what most people don't realize is, though, there are a variety of different canons of Scripture that are used around the world. So the Protestant Bible certainly differs from the Roman Catholic Bible, but the Roman Catholic Bible differs from the Greek Orthodox and the Slavic Church Bible. All of the other ones differ from the Church of the Ethiopians, Ethiopic Church. They have a canon that has more books in it than any canon I've ever seen in my life. But in the apocryphal books, you got everything from Tobit to Judith, the additions to the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, first and second Maccabees, and so on and so forth. So the, the, the reason that we have these issues goes back historically, and, and I'll give the, uh, the Catholic position first, and that is, number one, you've got to believe that Peter was the head of the church in the beginning, and Jesus put him in charge. That's the, that's the basic premise behind the, the, the teaching that flows forward in uh, history in the Roman Catholic Church with the canon, because if you believe that Peter was the first pope, then you're going to believe that there's a succession of papal leaders that came behind him, and that eventually there were a number of different councils, church councils, and these councils in their great inspired and infallible genius decided what books should be in there. So if you're talking to a a Roman Catholic priest or a very devout person who's strong on that, one of the things they're going to make very plain to you is that, look, how is it that all of the church can be wrong? And if if the, the church sanctioned these teachings and these beliefs, in these books, then these certainly ought to be things that, that we hold on to. What, what is often misunderstood, though, is when it comes to Peter, we do not have any of the information that the Roman Catholics have about Peter being the head of the church. So I'll give you, give you some info. Uh, number one, Rome is not mentioned in connection with Peter in the New Testament anywhere. There's just nothing in the scriptures that puts uh, him there. Secondly, Paul's epistle to the Romans and the end of the book of Acts do not, or I should say, allow the conclusion that neither the authors knew anything about a presumed stay of Peter in the city. Nobody ever said anything about Peter being in Rome at any time. When Peter and Paul got together in Galatians, you remember that chapter 2, Paul was designated to go to evangelize the uncircumcised heathens, and, and Peter said that he was going to stick with preaching and evangelizing the Jews, those that were circumcised. Now, there was the visit that Peter made in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, 
But, but even then, his, his, his uh, travels, for the most part, were restricted there to the, the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. We don't have any info, even though that historically people have said Peter's grave was in Rome. There are a lot of Roman Catholic scholars who tell you today that there is no grave that has anything to do with, uh, with Peter and any connection like that at all. So when it comes to the scriptures then, the, the reason we have a different Bible is because the New Testament that Protestants use, the Bibles, the, the, script, or the books I should say, they follow the format of the Greek Septuagint. And there was a, a translation of the Hebrew Bible a couple of centuries before Jesus Christ was born, and they had over 70 people working on that translation, and the, the first five books certainly were around during the time that Christ was here. But if you've ever looked at a Hebrew Bible, and if you can read Hebrew script in any way, then you'll notice that the way that the Hebrew books are arranged is different than how the Greek Septuagint books are arranged. So chronologically, you have the Old Testament books going from Isaiah to Malachi, because that's how it also is in the Greek Septuagint. But then at the same time, the Jewish people at no time recognized any of the books outside of the 39 books of the Old Testament as inspired or infallible. So when we use the word apocryphal, we're saying these books are somewhat mysterious. They have teachings in them that are not only ambiguous, but some of it is, is uh, opposed to what is taught in other places of the Scripture. By the time the Reformation came around, they did not want the Apocrypha to be recognized or thought of as an inspired book. Now, it was in some of the earliest KJV Bibles, but it was always placed between the old and the new with a little statement to make sure people understood the value of these is only for historical purposes, if you can even use it for that. But as far as doctrine, here's some of the main reasons that Protestants to this day still don't use the, uh, the Apocrypha. Number one, uh, some of the texts teach justification by human works and not by faith. So in the book of Tobit, chapter 12, verse 9, it says, almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. So if, if we give and we help the poor, then that's going to take care of some of our, some of our sin. Uh, also in the book of Baruch, who in the book of Jeremiah was a scribe for Jeremiah. It has a statement here about prayers for the dead. Prayers for the dead. O Lord, Almighty God of Israel, hear now the prayer of the dead of Israel, the children of those who sinned before you who did not heed the voice of the Lord their God, so their calamities have clung to us. And, and then also uh, the book of uh, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 19, 20, teach that before the soul entered the human body, it was preexistent. So it says, as a child, I was naturally gifted and a good soul fell to my lot, or rather being good, I entered an undefiled body. So if we make the soul preexistent, then that's somewhat like preexistent son, preexistent father, preexistent spirit. So we, we, we definitely don't adhere to that kind of a, of, of a teaching. And there's one more that I just mentioned, and I'll move on. 
in Ecclesiasticus chapter 22, verse 3, it says, it is, a dis- it is a disgrace to be the father of an undisciplined child, and the birth of a daughter is a loss. See, that's another reason we don't have that in the Protestant canon, because we don't, we don't think the, the, uh, the other scriptures hold a view that the birth of a girl is not necessarily a, a, a good thing. Now, the, the Christian church, in looking at these things historically, pretty much have, have already, always come to the conclusion, as Protestants, that what we have in the New Testament canon has pretty much been preserved by the earliest Christians. Once the apostles started writing these letters, the Gospels, then they went into circulation. Believe me when I tell you, there were a lot of different Gospels in circulation in the first and second century, and there are a lot of other epistles. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that the Bible speaks of a book of Jasher, okay? It speaks of uh, another book that deals with the deeds of kings. Uh, those books, those books aren't in our aren't, aren't aren't in our canon. But when we come to the New Testament, God was able to filter out what was heretical. So, like the Gospel of Thomas, which is very popular in some academic circles, it tells stories about Jesus turning uh, stones into birds and calling down fire on people and burning them and all of these kinds of things. Things that the early church knew had nothing to do with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's account. So as a, as a Christian then, we, we hold to what we have. God has given us the word. It's been preserved for us in what we have through Genesis, through the book of Revelation, and the New Testament authors quote, the books from the Old Testament, and they don't cite or specifically allude to these apocryphal books. So this is why we stay with these, and there's no, no need to change any of that. Well, that leads to another question, then, that I get very often. Do the scriptures contain error? Oh, my, how do you like that one? Wow. <laughs> Goodness. Surely you can't believe, Daryl, that that in this scientific age that we live in now, that the, the Bible is historically accurate and, and all of these things. So the way a lot of people get around it now, they'll say something like this. The, the Bible is not inerrant in all of its history, but it's inerrant in all that it says about faith and practice. That's what a lot of people say. Now, my, my question with that is, how do you know it's inerrant on faith and practice if it's wrong about history? If there was no David, then why do we talk about David? See, for a long time, archaeologists and other Near Eastern scholars says there never has been a group of people called the Hittites. The people in the Bible, they made that up. There never were Hittites. And then they started finding Hittite hieroglyphics. And then they started finding Hittite inscriptions. Then they discovered uh, very well that uh, that was actually, actually true. Now, when you ask the question or you hear the question, do the scriptures contain error? People are really asking two questions. Number one, they're asking you, was the Bible originally given without error? And then they're asking you, do you believe that God has actually preserved his scripture? That's, that's what they're asking. Well, on the first one, of course I believe God gave his word without error. I believe the giving of the word 
and perfection is as great as the new birth in a believer's life. God didn't give you a new birth that has uh, problems with it. You're born again the right way. You're born again by the Spirit of the Lord. The Scripture says, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, then when we move to the next question there, do we believe that God has preserved his word? Then my answer is going to be yes. Because if I don't believe he's preserved his word, then what, what need is there for me to get up here and talk about Scripture? I, I had a friend who one time was a professor at Princeton for over 60 years, a guy named Bruce Metzger. He probably was the most esteemed, what they call textual critic, in the history of America. This man wrote I don't know how many books and how many articles. And I wrote him a letter one time. The first letter I ever wrote him, I said, I'm looking at your book here, and it says that the last 12 verses of Mark are not in the original manuscripts. And so I said, as a pastor then, because I know there's, a, there's a, a critical text that people use, where the scholars make these adjustments and changes and amendments to verses. And I said, then there's the book that's been passed down that folks have used for hundreds and hundreds of years and a couple of thousands of years. So I said, the, the critical text that you're talking about says there are over 5,000 differences. In the New Testament alone, between that Greek text and the Greek text that's underlying my KJV. I say, when I come across stories like the last 12 verses of Mark or the woman in adultery, because most of you probably have seen in modern Bibles, it says the woman in adultery is not even a true story. It's not a part of any manuscript tradition. I said to him, what exactly do you want me to do with do with that? And he wrote back a nice, <clears throat> nice letter to me. And this was probably... 14 or 15 years ago, and he's really cordial, tactful, and he just said, well, you know, Pastor, what I would encourage you to do is, is follow the marginal comments that I have made and other scholars have made in uh, our books and just avoid those verses that we say are not original. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I looked at that. I said, you've you got to be kidding me. I said, people have been preaching these verses for hundreds and hundreds of years, but because you and six other people sit in the room and say, okay, do we believe this verse is authentic to the original? Everybody raise their hand, it's for it. And if you get a majority of people, then they vote a certain verse out or vote a new verse in. And I, I thought to myself, there's something wrong here. So when someone asks me, does the scripture contain error? I say, absolutely, if you're following a Bible that, based on the critical text. You got all kind of error. You know. Now, since 1881, every modern Bible, contemporary version that has come out, has been based upon the critical text. The, the last time we had scriptures that were being translated based on the, the traditional text or the Textus Receptus, that goes back to the to Tyndale Bible, KJV Bible, Geneva Bible, Coverdale Bible and, and uh, scriptures like that. And just recently, there was a Bible just came out called the Modern Version, Modern English Version. It is the first Bible in over a century to come out that's just based on the Greek Textus Receptus that was passed down through the Renaissance period and going back to the Middle Ages and back to the third century. When the people ask me, do scriptures contain error? I just simply say, 
Uh, I, I realize that there are differences in a lot of different manuscripts, but you've got to be willing to work to come to a, an understanding of what, you know, may not necessarily be a contradiction, but just requires a little bit of work. So I'll at least give you one example. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. I used to get this a lot when I was in the military. This was one that came up. Acts chapter 9, this is the story of Paul's conversion. And listen to the testimony that he gives. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse number 4. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said... Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he, following and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city. It'll be told you what you must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Now, now notice that. So in verse 4, it says, Paul heard a voice. Then in verse 7, it says, it says they, they, they all heard a voice, but they didn't see anybody. Now let's go to chapter 26 now. That's chapter 26. And notice verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were fallen, all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Okay. Now, there are a lot of books that make a whole lot of to do out of verse 14. They say, well, look, earlier he said that they all heard a voice, but here it just says he heard a voice. What is it? Is Luke confused about it? Well, remember Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Paul simply, Luke is describing it. He just said, I heard a voice, singular. Then he tells the, that the other people had then heard the voice also. In the testimony that is given here before the king, the story is only to signify that Paul heard something. He's not trying to reiterate again what's already been stated in chapter 9, that there were several other people that heard the voice also. To, to give you some other illustrations, one time someone was asking me about Leviticus 11.23, where it talks about, uh, in, in contemporary versions, it'll say insects with four wings. But then in other versions, it'll say fowl, you know, describing something with, uh, with wings. And they'll say, well, well that's a mis mistranslation. Maybe so, but that's not, a, that's not a problem in the Hebrew. See, nobody's claiming perfection for the KJV translation or for the NIV translation or for the ESV translation or the NASB translation. What's preserved and what's inerrant is the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic words that God has put together. And when someone translates the Hebrew word in, in Leviticus 11.23, it's speaking about something that has wings. See? Speaking about something that has wings. So whether you're describing it in a generic way about birds or generic and about insects, it can be that way. And then one other thing I'll mention that would take a whole other Bible study to work on is I always get the question when I'm dealing with errors about, okay, well, what day did Jesus die on? See, what day did he die on? How, how many angels were at the tomb? 
But sometimes it looks like it's one. Other times it looks like it's two. Did Jesus die on the day that the uh, Passover was offered? Or did it happen on the day before the Passover was offered? I can assure you that you can Google any of this stuff on your computer and you'll have 10,000 people that can explain this stuff with a whole lot better detail than I ever can. But I do have a book at home that's about this thick called The Alleged Discrepancies in the Bible, written back in about, oh, I want to say about 200 years ago, and it just works on all of this. The kinds of attacks that we hear on Scripture today did not just begin. These have been going on and on for a long time. People have been saying for ages, I don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead. People have been saying for a very long time that they have a hard time believing that Jonah's story about that great fish could actually be true. But listen, Jesus quotes the story of Jonah, and Jesus makes it very plain he believes in it, and he uses the story of Jonah to support the fact that he's going to be raised from the dead in the future. So These, these kinds of things shouldn't uh, disturb, disturb you. Let me give you something else, because I bet we're going to have questions after this Bible study, I'm telling you. Let's go to Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Here's an interesting one. Here's a question that came to me. Does Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, confirm the theory of evolution? So let's read the verse. Two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. I'll read the third verse also. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So again, here's the question. Does Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3 confirm the theory of, of evolution? It just depends on who you read. It depends on who you follow. And it depends on what they're saying about it. Now, I've, I've heard many times in my life about what they call the gap theory. Okay, the gap theory. Well, at least let me just say something about evolution. Evolution is a theory that man evolved from another kind of species. So there was transmutation from one kind to another. Well, that, that theory became so popular that in the 19th century, many ministers who were very well educated were not able to resist that theory in writing. And so rather than continue to just say, I believe by faith God made everything, they just said, look, we, we've got to somehow figure out a way to accommodate uh, this theory because this is the science this is where it is taking everybody and we look foolish if we stand in the face of science as an enemy and as an opponent so the gap theory became very popular which essentially in verse 2 when it says the earth was without form and void and then it goes on to say in verse 3 God said let there be light so the, the theory then was developed that says God started the making of creation then left it in a, a very bad state and then possibly a few billion years later, he kick-started the thing into motion again. That's, that's one uh, gap theory idea. Another one is that before there was Adam and Eve, God made heavens and earth, 
and that there were some pre-Adamic people that existed here on the planet. Now, this is, this is, I'm telling you now what I've heard preached from full gospel people. There was a whole race of people that were here before Adam, and then when they all died out, then God started with Adam. So that gives us the ability to say, okay, this is 6 million years later. This is 10 million years later. Well, here's my thinking on that. If there were people here before Adam, then 1 Corinthians 15 is wrong when it describes Adam as the first Adam, the first man. See? And when the scripture describes Jesus as the second Adam, that would be incorrect. Or as the last Adam, that would be incorrect. Now, there are some good biologists and scientists who can talk to you much better than I can about how old a tree is and how old some insects are and uh, the age of an orangutan jaw and all that kind of a thing. This is all you need to know is as far as what I think about any of that. You need to read what the psalmists say, what the prophets say, and what the apostles have written in the scripture. This is going to take you to heaven. I'm sure of that. I'm absolutely certain of that. And, and I do know from all of these years of reading the Bible, studying the Bible, preaching the Bible, if there was a theory in which mankind evolved from an amoeba or from another species, David didn't know anything about it. Moses didn't know anything about it. Read Psalm 19 that talks about the heavens declaring the earth. And read the other Psalms that talks about God being the maker, the shaper, the creator of all things. Isaiah, Jeremiah, none of them knew anything about that. Now, again... You can put somebody up uh, next to me who can argue all of uh, the, the other side, but, but when it's all over, they're still going to believe what they believe, and I'm still going to believe what I believe, because here's what I'm coming back to. How is it that a, a, a scientific, it doesn't even sound right to say scientific theory, it just doesn't sound right, but how, how is it that, that something so scientific that's so obvious could be, missing from every page of the Bible. See, that, that's the thing. That's, that's the thing that's, that's somewhat difficult uh, sometimes uh, for me. But then let's work on this, this other question that comes. In Matthew 26, verse 11, Jesus is with his disciples and there's a lady and she has an alabaster box of very precious ointment. Verse 7, Matthew 26, verse 7. And she poured it on his head as they sat eating. When the disciples saw it, they had indignation. They said, for, for what purpose is this waste? This ointment could have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a good thing upon me. For you have the poor always with you, but you don't have me always with you. Now, now here's the thing. Here's the question. How do we, how do we differentiate between true and false classes of poor people, of poverty? It's, it's quite obvious here in, in chapter 26, in verse 11, when Jesus said, the poor you have with you always, but in verse, uh, verse 11, but me not always, it's quite obvious Jesus doesn't class himself amongst the poor. 
If he says you're going to have the poor with you all the time, and then you're not going to have me. He, he doesn't consider himself of, of that particular group of people. That's, that's quite obvious. But then the question comes, why do we have poverty and why do we have poor people in the world in the first place? Because Psalm 41 verse 1 said, blessed is he who considereth the poor. So you want to be mindful of the poor. You want to help the poor. You don't want to be negligent when it comes to the poor. But the question, why do we have poverty and poor people? Let me work on a couple of scriptures here, first of all. Number one, the first time we run into the word poor in connection with people is in Exodus 22, verse 25. And in that verse there, the Lord is talking about, in fact, let's just go there. I'll let you see it. Second book of the Bible, Exodus 22, verse 25. Exodus 22, verse 25. And if you lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. So that's saying you're not, you don't put a whole bunch of interest on them. That's what that is. Exodus 22, verse 25. That's Old Testament. That's Moses Speaking on behalf of the Lord, talking to the Jewish people. So notice the first instance when the word poor is mentioned in connection with people is dealing with money. It's, it's, dealing, it's dealing with money. So now we understand this is how we're going to work this out in terms of the amount of money folks have. Look at chapter 30 of Exodus. Chapter 30, verse 15. Notice what it says in verse 15. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel, when they shall give an offering unto the Lord to make atonement for their souls. So it didn't matter how much money you had or how little money you had, when it came to giving an offering for atonement, everybody had to give something. So there's no such, there was no such thing amongst the children of Israel as they're too poor to give something. They, they, they don't have any money. They, they, there's always something somebody can give. And that's why when Jesus was born... With his parents not hardly having anything, they could even go and offer two turtle doves at the temple. Because the scripture said, even if you were poor, if you can, you bring a lamb. If you can't, you bring two turtle doves. If, if you can't, you bring a meal offering. There's something poor people can do. Paul describes this in Corinthians when he talks about God loves a cheerful giver. And he talks about the Macedonians, how out of deep poverty they gave. So the, the poorest people that you've ever read about in scripture still had something they could give to God because God always made sure they had something they could have. And, and, and I'll bring this out here a little bit more. Let me just quote a few more scriptures here. Uh, the, the scripture says to us in Deuteronomy chapter 15, and, and that might even be one you want to mark for your own personal reference, but Deuteronomy 15, I'll read the first four verses. And it's, it's quite interesting. It talks about the, the seventh year being a year of release. At the end of every seven years thou shalt make a release. This is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth anything to his neighbor shall release it. That means forgive the debt. And it says he shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. So in verse 3 he talks about the foreigner or the immigrant. Verse 4, save when there be no poor among you, for the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Well, it's possible then that 
a individual can live in a land if they follow the principles of God where there are no poor people. God can bless in such degree that poverty is eradicated. But that rarely happens, though. But that is why he says what he says here. But then verse 11, you'll notice, he goes on to say, the poor shall never cease out of the land. And that is what Jesus <clears throat> is referring to in Matthew 26 when he says, the poor you'll have with you always. Now, there's a reason from, from the study of the Old Testament, there are several reasons that you had poor people in the Old Testament. Here are a couple of them. Number one, one nation plundered another nation's citizens. So you remember the story of the book of Judges? The Midianites come in and uh, they take the produce and the harvest of the other tribesmen. And see, if we had people that were coming from surrounding towns around here and every year at harvest time, they started stealing everything that the farmers were trying to harvest. Don't you think that would impoverish people? Yeah, it would impoverish people because so much of what operates in this area functions according to the agricultural economy. So it can be because of that. The second thing in ancient times was that there were people who were indigent or lazy. They refused to work. And you see that in Proverbs. The Bible talks about how poverty comes in like an armed man. And it talks about I looked at the lazy man's house and it was overgrown with vines and all of these things. So lazy people who won't do anything, they're never going to have anything. That's, that's the thing. So scripture says, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't what? Doesn't eat. See, if you don't plan anything, nothing's going to come up. You don't get a job, you're not going to have any money. And uh, Paul goes on to say, if a person doesn't take care of their home, they're worse than an infidel. So here's the third thing. Sometimes a person is born in dire circumstances from which they never escape. Now, I've met a lot of people like that in my travels around the world. I've met people who grown up in very poor places. Now, the, the kids in the church were just, they were kind enough. Back there on that back wall, there's a, another calendar up there, and it's got pictures uh, of me and Tiff in Kenya and all these different places. You ought to look at that afterwards and, and see uh, some of the poverty uh, over there because poor people over there are different than what I categorize as poor people here. Very different, very different. So sometimes a person can grow up in a setting, where, whether it's in a valley or in a mountain, or in a particular village, in all of their life, that's all they know. They never get to go anywhere else. So there, there are millions of people like that in this world today. And to, to give you an even, even plainer illustration of that, some of you that are older, you remember when, when you were younger or you heard your parents talk about uh, people didn't get to town all the time see, because of transportation. And for some of the ones out here, some people never made it to Lincoln or Omaha until they were adults. You understand? And we're just talking about a couple of hundred miles. So imagine living in places in this world where you, it's mountainous and it's impoverished and you might be separated by water, but you don't have absolutely anything at all and you don't have any money for a bike, <clears throat> a uh, car. And so if you're going to go anywhere, you've got to walk. And so a lot of people... If, if, if they don't walk several hundred miles, they're not going to ever get outside of where they've been raised. Uh, here, here's something else that can create poverty and, and poor people. A drought. Okay, You see that in the scripture, a drought. People can, the, the, the heavens don't produce anything, so if there's no rain, there's no harvest. 
there's no harvest, there's no food, there's no trade, there's no food or trade, you're certainly going to have poverty. And then uh, the, the other thing I'll mention is indebtedness. Indebtedness. The reason they had the seven-year release and the reason they had the, the uh, year of jubilee was because it's possible for you to accrue so much debt to a relative that you end up becoming a slave to somebody and they own you. So in the Old Testament, the Lord had it that seventh year. There was a release for your brother or for a fellow citizen. Uh, the 49th going into the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, you had to forgive all debts, start all claims all over again. Imagine that. So the, these things were, were very difficult. Now, it wasn't too long ago in Europe, and, and even here in the colonial days, we had the debtor's prison. So if you owed a whole lot of money, you went to jail until your family bailed you out. Now, that wouldn't be good today because there are a whole lot of family members that will be saying, you will be sitting in there for some time because I'm not getting you out of there. Well, let, let's work on this whole thing about poor then. Uh, the, the word poor and poverty, it's relative, depending on how you're going to judge who's got the most and who's got the less. You know, When you say to me, or better yet, I'll I, I just give, a, give an illustration. I get calls like this probably at least once every nine months from in one of the other places where we got phone lines and stuff. I phone a ring, I'll pick it up. Pastor Darrell, hello, how can I help you? Hey, Pastor Darrell, how you doing? This is so-and-so, and I'm calling because I, I, I hear that when, when people are in trouble, you, you folks will help take care of people's bills. Bless them. So I said, oh, I said, well, we, we want to be a blessing to anybody we can. And if people need help, we certainly want to be able to help people. I said, tell me a little bit about your situation. Well, I was working so-and-so. Now I'm not working here. How'd you lose your job? Well, I, I should have been there at such and such time, but I couldn't make it because this came up. What came up? And, you know, so I'm asking a whole lot of questions. Then finally I get down to how much, how much do you need? What do you need covered? Well, water. Gas, electric, so on, so on, so on. Then I ask, do, do you have a landline at your house? No, I only have a cell, cell phone. I said, how much is your cell phone? Well, you ask a lot of questions. I said, you called me. <laughs> Look, if you go to a bank, okay, if you go to a bank, the bank is not just going to give you $10,000 just because they've known you a long time. What, what they're very interested in is whether or not you're a credible person. And so I'm calling, I mean, I'm asking these questions because I've talked to enough local pastors to know that there are people locally and regionally who will call every pastor every three months, see, and do this. So I say, okay, uh, your cell phone, how how much is your cell phone every month? Oh, about $180. Dollars, what kind of phone you got? You got, a, you got an iPhone 19 or iPhone 37? What do you have? <laughs> you know, that's a $500 phone. Whatever kind of iPhone these people have, $399 upwards, that, that's a whole lot of cash. So then I'll say, okay, well, let me ask you this. Do you have cable television? Dish. What do you have? Well, we got direct TV. Oh, my, another hundred something dollars right there. Now, the reason I'm asking all of these questions is because 
I'm not telling them I'm not going to give or help, but what I want them to see is they need to know the difference between what they need and what they want. Then I'll ask, okay, well, how many pets do you have? You know, cats and dogs and hamsters, they have to eat every day. Yeah. And, and usually by the time I'm done with that, they're ready to get off the telephone, okay? But, but here's my point, though. Many of the people that I so often hear uh, people advocating for are not nearly as poor as people think. They've made bad decisions. True, we've all probably made decisions we wish we could, we could get back. But at some point, if, if you've got to ask some, someone for help when it comes to money, you have to be willing sometimes to receive the advice that comes with that. Because my dad always told me, boy, I don't have a money tree out in the backyard where I can just go grab a $50 bill off of. Your mom and I work for this. So we just can't waste this. So when someone talks to me about the poor, then that's what I'm thinking about. When I'm thinking about causes for the poor, what kind of causes do I give towards? Then I'm thinking about what kind of, what kind of causes really do make a difference? And can you... Can you, can you confirm that your money gets to the people that are needing the help? See? When Tiffany and I, over a year and a half ago, went down to Tennessee to the Children's Cancer Hospital down there, I was walking up and down those hallways, and I saw all of these paintings on the wall, you know, just to make it happy for the kids, and I saw people walking around in clown outfits to make the kids laugh, and and here was something that operates on donations, okay, on donations. And I saw people that were in the hallway and they were painting. Many of them were volunteers because I stopped and talked to a couple of them and asked them. And I said, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a worthwhile situation. These people need, need, need help and they can certainly bless a whole lot of people. But when I get phone calls on the telephone sometimes, and they're saying, well, will you give towards this or will you give towards that? I don't always give. Sometimes I do. But with, with what I do, whether it's with Kenya or somebody else working in another country, there's never been a time where I've ever received a dollar that is supposed to go with me overseas and, and, and leaves America with me, and then it stays in my pocket. It goes right over there to them people that have absolutely nothing. There's one of them pictures there where I'm standing by a shack and I'm standing with the bishop and his family and there's got some kids standing uh, there by a little dilapidated, dilapidated building and, and I gave them some bubble gum. They'd never had any in their life. We buy bubble gum anytime we want to. And I watched them as they chewed on that, and then they pull it out and look at it and just start laughing and giggling and stick it back in there trying to figure out how that sweetness is coming out, and then they look at it again. Well, see, it's little stuff like that that's a blessing. If, if, if I have to travel the world to raise thousands of dollars to help supply the salaries for a few preachers so that they can preach without being hungry, I'm quite happy to do that. And there are millions of other ministers in America and around the world that have some other cause that they believe in. That's important to them. But when we talk about people that are poor, I mean, goodness, folks. Uh, our poor people are rich in other places. Now, that's not to degrade anybody. I know there are a lot of places around here, and 
throughout the county where people struggle and have difficulties. And I've met a whole lot of men that really just had some tough breaks. And they really do try to work hard. And the wives have had a couple of tough breaks, a few setbacks, and they're doing everything they can to, to raise their kids and be a blessing to them. And I'm, I, I can't tell you how many times Tiffany and I have emptied our pocket going to visit somebody and just sat there with them and they were needing a little bit of help and just whatever I have, I just pull it out and just give it to them and bless them that way. You can't go wrong that way. The scripture says, if you bless those that are able to bless you back, what reward do you have? But if you give to somebody who's unable to give to you in the measure that you're giving to them, that's where your blessing comes from. There are many people in this world who give to tax-exempt organizations and churches and other things like that because they can write it off for their taxes. But would you do it if you were just doing it to bless somebody who didn't have anything? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting a tax write-off. I'm just simply saying if, we, if churches and other things couldn't, couldn't, couldn't have those kind of benefits and privileges, would you still want to give? Because there are a lot of people. They'll write big checks if they know come tax time they can, they can do something. But if they're not sure, they won't deal with it at all. So be wise with your money. God's made you a steward over what he's given to you. Be very thankful for what God has given to you, the station in life that you have, the blessings that have come to you, and praise the Lord every single day about that. And You don't ever need to be uh, regretful about where God has brought you to, especially if you've worked and you've earned it. You see? But also don't let people make you feel guilty about having something nice. You know, you've earned it. Just recognize you have everything that you have because of how good God has been. And then when opportunities present themselves for you to bless someone else, then do it. And you'll find that you'll sleep good at night and uh, you won't run around here just being oppressed by condemnation because you don't feel like you are doing enough. You know, scripture says somebody got two coats, they can give one to the other. Jesus never says get rid of all your coats so that you don't have one. It says if a brother's going to walk two miles, you walk with him a little bit further. He never tells you to stay back here. You just go with him. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful tonight that we can look at a few questions from the scripture one thing we do know is that none of us are infallible or perfect, and you're omniscient. You know everything, but the little bit of wisdom and insight that we have, Father, we just shared until you shed more light on it for us in the future. God, I do pray that you will bless each one of us that are in here. Help us to be thankful and grateful for the doors that you've opened for each of us, because we are deeply appreciative of the fact that we have a home, we have vehicles, we have family, we have friends, and we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.